You're listening to Consider This, episode 321, for September 11, 2021. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whenever, wherever, and whoever you are, welcome to a special edition of Consider This on the 20th anniversary of the terror attacks of 9-11. For those of us who remember that day, it may be kind of hard to believe it's been 20 years already, but that's where we find ourselves. As the generation passes on that remembers where they were when they heard about Pearl Harbor or the Kennedy assassination, this is the historic event for another generation. And it might be a good time to talk to that previous generation about Pearl Harbor and Kennedy, but we'll touch on that later. We'll start with my thoughts on the day, we'll hear from a listener about her memories, and we'll hear a foreigner's essay about how we came together because of it, and I'll wind up with some closing thoughts. They weren't Canadian. These were the first words that I heard when I picked up the phone in my cubicle and said, Hello, Doug Payton. I recognized the voice as someone from our Canadian office. What? I stammered, taken a little aback by the unusual greeting. They weren't Canadian, he repeated. What weren't Canadian, I asked. The planes, he replied. What planes, I asked. And that's when I found out that something was disastrously wrong. By this time, both towers had been hit. I tried to bring up various news sites on the web to find out what was happening, but apparently everyone else in the country, and much of the world, was doing the same thing. My web browser just showed me error after error. At one point, I managed to get the top portion of the Drudge Report to load, and his headline screamed, who did this? I remember the voicemail I got at the office from my wife telling me to listen to the news. I remember hearing people in other cubicles relay news reported to them from spouses or friends over the phone, some of which turned out to be wrong. I remember thinking that when the towers came down, the death toll could reach into the five figures. I remember being so grateful later on that it wasn't. I remember my boss telling everyone to go home. I remember watching TV pretty much the rest of the day. I remember when my kids got home from school and we talked about what had happened. My kids took it well. They asked questions and I answered them to the best that I could. I've always tried to instill a sense of history in them when interesting things happen. We talked a lot about the 2000 election debacle. But in this case, there was history mixed with a sadness, even a reverence for those who just went to work that day and never came home. One of my daughters was studying the state of New York in school and had recently decided to do a diorama of New York City. When it came time to do the buildings, I was going to print out a picture of the skyline, which we'd cut up and give it a 3D look. When we asked her whether she wanted the Twin Towers there or not, she thought for a second and decided she wanted them to be there. 
She and her sister had visited the Twin Towers a couple of years earlier with their aunt from Queens, and they remember looking out from the top. Sometime after the cleanup at Ground Zero was finished, I took my three oldest kids there. I had some pictures of them there, as well as the perfectly proportioned cross made of steel beams that was found in the wreckage, standing tall in the midst of what should have been two tall towers and thousands of people. Again, I was trying to instill a sense of the historic in them. I have a lot of memories from 9-11, but not nearly as many as others. One of my brothers-in-law was stuck in downtown Manhattan for three straight days. He did maintenance work at a hospital, and for him to leave would have meant putting patients in peril, so he stayed. When he did come home, he ate, he slept, and went right back. You want memories? He's got them, and they're far more emotional than mine. So twenty years on, we're remembering the day, each in our own way, based on our own memories. But we as a nation have a corporate memory as well, the sum total of all our thoughts and experiences. This national memory sometimes fades in and out, especially as time passes. We were so patriotic in the days after 9-11, but where has that gone now? Some of us still are, but flag decals on your car don't make you patriotic. I think standing up for your country when you believe your country is right is nothing to be ashamed of. I also think criticizing your country in an honest manner when you believe your country is wrong is nothing to be ashamed of either. So I believe that criticizing a war you think is wrong is patriotic. But I don't think that marching in the street complaining of a tyrannical government that is worse than Al-Qaeda or is somehow dictatorial is an honest criticism. If they were tyrannical, if they were stifling dissent, you couldn't be marching in the street against them. In one episode of Deep Space Nine, Captain Sisko noted the problem between how Earth was handling a situation and how he thought it should be handled. His complaint was that Earth itself was the problem. Just because a group of people belong to the Federation, it does not mean that they are saints. Excuse me. Do you know what the trouble is? No. The trouble is Earth. Really? On Earth, there is no poverty, no crime, no war. You look out the window of Starfleet headquarters and you see paradise. Well, it's easy to be a saint in paradise. In a similar fashion, I think we in the U.S. don't really understand how good we've got it. We've forgotten, as a nation, what it felt like that fall morning when 3,000 died and our notion of impenetrability was shattered. Hopefully today we'll remind some folks about what is really going on in the world. Seeing people who have more of an emotional attachment to their 9-11 memories might awaken in others the real reason we can't wait for the rest of the world to agree that our country needs defending. Today is not just an occasion to light some candles. It is not just for comforting those who've lost loved ones. It is those things, but it is also one thing above all. This is a day to remember. 
remember. I put out a call for listeners to let me know what they felt and experienced that day 20 years ago. Here's what listener Barb had to say. Hello, Doug. This is Barb. And for the Consider This episode this week, you asked for our memories of 9-11. I was living in Phoenix, Arizona at the time, and I was working for a major aerospace company. And that morning, or that day, that week, I guess, our executives were at the then-corporate headquarters in northern New Jersey for meetings. And so I was being lazy that Tuesday morning, and I was listening to my favorite news talk radio rather than getting out of bed and going to work. When the news announcer broke in about 5.55 a.m. Arizona time, and she said that a small jet had hit the World Trade Center. Now, to me, a small jet meant a business jet, and, and I thought that was really odd. So I decided, well, maybe I'd better get up and see what was going on. And a few minutes later, she was back on the air, and I could hear her voice shaking, and she said, I don't know how to say this, but another plane has hit the World Trade Center. And all I said was, terrorists, because I knew exactly what had happened. They were using planes as weapons, and it was just like in the Tom Clancy novel that I had let, read a few years before. Now, like everyone else that day, I didn't get much done, I was at home and I watched the first tower collapse just before 7 a.m. on TV. And then I got in the car and started driving to work and I listened to the news about the second building collapse. On the freeway, cars moved slowly and everyone was just as stunned um, as I think I was. And now I worked by the airport, and there were no planes in the sky, and that was a very unusual feeling, especially when you work in the industry. And for the next six-plus months after that, I had to submit a daily report on our uh, division sales activities to the company CEO because in aerospace we were trying to monitor when the industry might turn around after that devastating event. And it took a very long, long time, and... I think that's why I had predicted that COVID would also be devastating to the industry, as it has been, because I had seen what fear could do to people and, and what would happen. I don't know anyone personally who died on 9-11, but I had friends and former co-workers who did. A dear college friend of mine um, had a neighbor her, and her fellow church attender. He was the co-pilot of American Airlines Flight 11 which was the first plane to hit the towers. Two of my coworkers had family members that were in the World Trade Center that day and did not survive. One had a daughter, one had a brother-in-law. And a friend of mine from Phoenix was from New York and his uncle was a firefighter. And they identified some of his remains just before Thanksgiving that year, just a few months later. I don't know what we've learned since then. We came together as a country, we were nicer to each other, we were more caring about each other, and now we're horribly divided. Our flag and country are reviled by many, uh, and indeed, you really don't see a flag flown as much anymore as you used to see. One of the things that happened after that was my mother started talking about what happened to her on Pearl Harbor Day and the experiences that she had, and I had never heard any of those stories before. 
And I think that one of the things that I've learned is that unless you experience something yourself, you really don't understand the impact. And I don't think that we actually do learn from history, even though we say that we need to. Now, that's all very depressing, but, but I think that one of the things that it has done in, in this past 20 years is make me more determined to make a small difference where I can, when I can. And I really hope that that is a lesson that others will join in. You know, use kindness and make a difference. Make a difference where you can, when you can. This is similar to advice I'd heard elsewhere. If you want to change the world, start with changing yourself. By indeed, making a difference where you can, when you can. If you can't do that, the world is certainly too far a stretch. Thanks, Barb, for your thoughts. Naturally, Cornell Nistorescu writes his column in Romanian. He is, after all, managing director of News of the Day, an influential newspaper in Romania. So he was more than a little startled when he started getting emails from the United States about a column he wrote in late September 2001, soon after 9-11. He wrote the column after watching a telethon broadcast from Los Angeles to raise money for victims of the terror attacks. He had called the column an ode to America, and when he began getting emails from the United States about it, he realized it had been translated and put on the Internet. It's unbelievable, said Mr. Eskew, who was in Washington at the time. It's incredible how a text published in Romanian became a mirror for America. Moved by the spirit of the telethon, Mr. Rescue, who had been a newspaper man for 25 years at the time, and writes on an old-fashioned typewriter, began trying to figure out for himself what America was all about. He described his conclusions in the Ode to America. Why are Americans so united? They don't resemble one another even if you paint them. They speak all the languages of the world, and form an astonishing mixture of civilizations. Some of them are nearly extinct, others are incompatible with one another, and in matters of religious beliefs, not even God can count how many they are. Still, the American tragedy turned 300 million people into a hand put on the heart. Nobody rushed to accuse the White House, the Army, the Secret Services, that they are only a bunch of losers. Nobody rushed to empty their bank accounts. Nobody rushed on the streets nearby to gape about. The Americans volunteered to donate blood and to give a helping hand. After the first moments of panic, they raised the flag on the smoking ruins, put on T-shirts, caps, and ties in the colors of the national flag. They placed flags on buildings and cars as if in every place and on every car a minister or the president was passing. On every occasion, they started singing their traditional song, God Bless America. Silent as a rock, I watched the charity concert broadcast on Saturday once, twice, three times on different TV channels. There were Clint Eastwood, Willie Nelson, Robert De Niro, 
Julia Roberts, Muhammad Ali, Jack Nicholson, Bruce Springsteen, Sylvester Stallone, James Woods, and many others whom no film or producers could ever bring together. The Americans' solidarity spirit turned them into a choir. Actually, choir is not the word. What you could hear was the heavy artillery of the American soul. What neither George W. Bush nor Bill Clinton nor Colin Powell could say without facing the risk of stumbling over words and sounds was being heard in a great and unmistakable way in this charity concert. I don't know how it happened that all this obsessive singing of America didn't sound croaky, nationalistic, or ostentatious. It made you green with envy because you weren't able to sing for your country without running the risk of being considered chauvinistic, ridiculous, or suspected of who-knows-what mean interests. I watched the live broadcast and the rerun of its rerun for hours, listening to the story of the guy who went down 100 floors with a woman in a wheelchair without knowing who she was, or of the Californian hockey player who fought with terrorists and prevented the plane from hitting a target that would have killed other hundreds or thousands of people. How on earth were they able to bow before a fellow human? Imperceptibly, with every word and musical note, the memory of some turned into a modern myth of tragic heroes. And with every phone call, millions and millions of dollars were put in a collection aimed at rewarding not a man or a family, but a spirit which nothing can buy. What on earth can unite the Americans in such a way? Their land? Their galloping history? Their economic power? Money? I tried for hours to find an answer, humming songs and murmuring phrases which risk sounding like commonplaces. I thought things over, but I reached only one conclusion. Only freedom can work such miracles. I want to touch on one topic before finishing up here. And I want to begin with the last line of Cornell Nistorescu's Ode. Only freedom can work such miracles. We have been given such an amazing birthright by our founding fathers, but I fear too many don't really grasp how important it is, even as it gets chipped away by a bigger and more intrusive government. Maybe people don't understand it because it's being chipped away so much. You never miss what you never experienced. Colleges are full of kids who weren't born on 9-11 or who are too young to remember it. While we have technology, which Mr. Zabruder could only dream of, that allows you to see and hear it happen, being there at that moment in time can never quite be communicated in words. I am concerned, too, that the freedom that Mr. Nistorescu talked about is something that has been fading with generations. This freedom, as much as it has been holding tight to life, has been slowly deteriorating. Every time the government spends millions or billions or trillions more than it takes in, we lose freedom to the ever-increasing debt. Every time fear causes us to inter our fellow citizens merely because of what they might be or do, 
we lose freedom to the idea that, yes, we did go there and run the risk of doing it again. Every time we censor speech merely because we take offense at it, we lose freedom to whoever can get the most offended. Freedom is on its deathbed. Who can revive it? The Founding Fathers understood from where this freedom came, and they believed this so intently that they pledged their lives to defend not just the idea of freedom, but the idea of where it came from. The document where they made this pledge begins this way. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What they were defending was every individual's right, given to them by God and not government, to be free. They may not have lived up to the ideal themselves, but they knew what the ideal was and where it came from. Here's how one of them put it in the year prior to the Declaration of Independence. The fundamental source of all your errors, sophisms, and false reasoning is a total ignorance of the natural rights of mankind. Were you once to become acquainted with these, you could never entertain a thought that all men are not by nature entitled to a parity of privileges. You would be convinced that natural liberty is a gift of the beneficent creator to the whole human race, and that civil liberty is founded in that and cannot be wrested from any people without the most manifest violation of justice. So I would say to Mr. Nistorescu that what really happened here is that God worked such miracles through the freedom that he granted each of us, even through those who don't believe in him. Freedom is like that. And hearing those words from Alexander Hamilton, I think he might look at us in 2021 and say, consider this. <laughs>